0: personal testimonies, and uplifting messages that remind us of the unchanging love and grace available to all. And remember this, you matter to Christ.
1: Hey everybody, Chad Burmeister, and I'm your host of the Living a Better Story podcast. Today, I am with Hannah Fordyce from Minnesota, the Twin Cities, or just outside of um, where I'm sure it's not warm today, but uh, it compared to what? <laughs> and I'm, and so Hannah is the uh, is with House of Faith and Freedom, and we're going to get into what what they do. Um, the company started around the start of the pandemic, um, and and allows Hannah to work from home, as she said. So that's very cool. Hannah, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Chad.
1: Well, I'm excited to dig in. It's, uh, since the move has been about six weeks for me, my number of podcast interviews dropped from two a day, sometimes down to maybe one a week. So I'm, I'm eager to dig in and have the conversation. Uh, so, so thanks for, for being back on the show. So tell me if I would, I'll get into the first question and, and it's kind of fun. It's a new one for 2022 and it's, if you were to ask your friends, family, colleagues. Hey, what are the top three words that you would use to describe Hannah? What would you think that that your friends and neighbors would say about you?
2: So kind of the funny thing is I I actually did. I went and asked them <laughs> uh, what, their, what their three words to describe me would be because I always feel really uncomfortable trying to come up with my own personal descriptors. <laughs> um and the three that my, my best friend came up with were authentic, loyal, and honest. And I do think all three of those are pretty applicable for me. So yeah, I like what it. It's worth. there it is. Very cool.
1: I did the same thing. I went out to about 10 different people and said, tell me the words. And, and, uh, it is kind of fun actually doing that exercise. So rewinding the tape, um, back to five, six, seven years old, your first memories, were you always in The Twin Cities, or where'd you grow up and what was your passion when you were younger?
2: Yeah, I actually grew up in northern Minnesota, um, just north of Duluth on the shores of Lake Superior. And um, my family lived in a log home on 20 acres, and I had two older brothers. So I spent a lot of time outdoors and playing in the woods and kind of like entertaining ourselves. We all had very vivid imaginations. So when I think back to, you know, when I was five, six, seven, a lot of what I was doing was tagging after my brothers and, um, and then playing make-believe in the woods. I, you know, here, here we go for a, a true admitting moment. I was really into fairies when I was a kid. So I had like a fairy garden out on, on part of the acreage and, um, you know, I just love to go out there and, and believe that there was something more or something magical in the world.
1: Mm, that's cool. I think there's a movie that captures that pretty well in the forest that I saw one time. Uh, that's, that's really neat. And you, they're two older brothers you had.
2: I do I, yep. Two older okay. brothers. So it was, uh, it was very dichotomous on my own. I played a lot with fairies and with my brothers, I played a lot with like swords.
0: Yes. got it. <laughs> so,
2: you know, different, but, but it was a good time. Still always a lot of, um, yeah. A lot of imagination. We didn't spend much of our childhood, like sitting, watching TV. Most of it was outside doing stuff.
1: Yes. And did you find that there was a certain role that you would play other than fairy, um, <laughs> in terms of the relationship with whether it's your brothers or other friends in the, were you leading? Were you instigating? Like what was your thing then?
2: Yeah, yeah, I was often the leader of my friends, my friend group. So I was the one like orchestrating the entire play scenario, right? Like I was coming up with the world. What was what we were doing, who we were, why we were trying to do whatever it was that we were doing, you know, like that was that historically carried on for many years, whether it was imagination or just um, moving into other elements of my friend groups up through grade school, like I often ended up being a ringleader for what it was worth, you know, whether that's good or bad.
1: (laughs) Well, and I think helping people connect the dots, because what I often find when I talk to folks on this show is it, you know, when you're a kid, you're kind of, the world hasn't impacted you yet, right? You're passionate about stuff. And then the older you grow up, you know, you might move into different directions. And so keeping that line between then and now as close to the line as you can is a good idea, right? Cause that's what you, that's what you enjoy to do. So leading is important to you. Um, this is also new for this year. If, if your younger self, Hannah pulled up a chair next to you right now and looked across the table and said, Hey, Hannah, great job. Um, I wish you could be doing a little more of this. Or do you think that the younger Hannah looking at the, that the current Hannah would, you know, would there be a gap there and, and what do you think it would look like?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, outside of my work with House of Faith and Freedom, I am also a writer. So I'm working on a novel right now. And um, and I, it's just the project that's a passion project, but falls to the side a lot because I get busy and I get stuck doing other stuff. And I think younger me would be adamant that I should spend more time getting lost in that creativity, then I give myself, right? As an adult, I have bills to pay. I have things I have to do. I have uh, important responsibilities, you know, air quotes around that important responsibilities. And I tend to neglect that part of myself that wants to tell a story that wants to get lost in something that's bigger than me. And, And I wish that I took more time to cultivate that and to value it and to think that's really time well spent. It's not frivolous or wasted um so i think that's one element of myself i tend to leave behind if you're familiar with strength finders at all my number one on the strength finders is responsibility so i have a very intense sense of what i need to accomplish or get done or the things i've committed to and um and myself is pretty low on that list (laughs) so Mm -hmm. um I think that would be probably what my younger self would say is like, give yourself more room for fun and for imagination and for the things you're passionate about, like writing.
1: That's cool. And it's funny because I bet if you moved that over into the responsibility bucket that, hey, the world requires that, then it would get done.
2: <laughs> oh, totally. If I, thought yeah. myself, if I thought that was like a true priority, I would probably spend a lot more time doing it.
1: Yes, well, for me, it's if I set a date for something like this event on February 16th to 20th at my new house, then uh, it, it kind of encourages you to get those kinds of things done. So we put out a book over the last 60 days called Be Extraordinary, and it was these podcasts converted into text, and then there's experiential exercises around each of them. Um, so that was uh, that was motivation to get things done.
2: Yeah, that's <laughs> incredible.
1: So tell me about a time, you know, it seems like everything's going great for you right now. There, there's always times where you hit a speed bump in the road or, and it feels like a bigger, you know, it feels enormous at the time. Is there a trauma or something that you experience that you're comfortable sharing on the podcast with our listeners that, um, that you can share about? And, and how did you get through it?
2: Sure. Uh, I've got a doozy for you. And I think this is actually a great, a great point. One of the things I love about your podcast is that you take these stories that from the outside can look very um, successful or inspirational. And you realize that kind of underneath that, everybody has a shared level of some form of trauma or suffering. It's just something that we're all universally going to go through, which is what helps us cultivate compassion, right? So for me, it would be 2017. And I literally blanketly say the entire year because it was insane. Um, My dad passed away in a house fire very unexpectedly in February of 2017. And then three weeks later, I miscarried my first child and had complications with that and had to have emergency surgery. And then a week after that... My mother-in-law got diagnosed with terminal brain cancer and I became one of her primary caretakers. It was like one month of just so much loss. It felt like I was getting crushed under the heel of God. Like it was so insane. And I think in that moment when you're really just clinging on by a thread, is where you really meet God, right? Because you realize you have to hold on to something bigger. Like, I remember my brother saying, if this is Satan trying to crush my faith, he chose the wrong strategy, because at this point, I have to believe there's a heaven. I have to believe there's something more, because otherwise, what's the point? And I think that really held true throughout that entire season of just clinging to the cross and also trusting that the moments I couldn't cling to it, God was clinging to me and watching his faithfulness in all of these really small ways throughout that entire year where I just felt him upholding me in almost a physical way when I felt like I couldn't continue forward. So although, although a genuinely horrific time period of my life, it's also one of the most impactful and powerful seasons of my life because it shaped who I am and it shaped what I do. And it gave me this tenacity to just cling on to God, no matter what life throws at me and to realize like, I will survive it. You know, my, my faith will survive it. And, and ultimately there's, there's more, there's something more in eternity. There's something bigger than me.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a tough year. It's, it's always, you know, when you, when you look through the filter of your own life and you think, man, last year was my tough year and it was like three traumatic events, just boom, boom, and boom. And, and there's, you know, on a scale of one to 10 there, you really can't put a scale to this stuff because it's all relative. Um, what a, what a tough year. There's a song that I've heard about six months ago. Um, called his handiwork by mm-hmm. Noah Mac McElroy. And it's a, it's the opener says, I know you doubt in your hurt. I know you question your worth are the first two lines. And it's just such a beautiful song in it. And then it goes on to talk about God providing like the birds. They don't have very big brains mm-hmm. and yet they are fed and they live. And it's like, don't worry about it. The the everything's going to be okay. Um, yeah, and I think it that, that faith
2: coming to that in a in a way where it's like not trite too, where you don't look at people who've experienced trauma and be like, "But God is still good," even though that's a truth. It's mm. sort of that like, how do you meet them in the place where their suffering is and say, "And there's something more. Like this hurts and is terrible and is crushing." And you're down here in this pit right now. And instead of just, you know, yelling down into the pit, like, God, is still good. You know, throwing down a rope and and climbing down there with them and being like, there is a way out, right? Like, I, I can help you climb out of this. And there is something more than this. You're not destined to sit forever down here. And I think that type of empathy and compassion can almost only be cultivated through suffering, through loss. And it, and it helps us meet other people on, on their own level of loss, which is really powerful.
1: Yes. Wow. Well, the three traumas for me, when I was pulling off, actually during trauma number two, when my son had second, third degree burns on his face and hands, that was terrible. And yet we had full faith and, and now you would look at him and you wouldn't even know it happened. But I remember during that, I would go to the hospital, pull off the side of the road, and there was always six or eight homeless people on this one exit. And so a lot of times, you know, you, you just move on and you look the other way. And I'm like, you know what? That's my brother and sister over there. I, I got to do something. So I'd pull over, put the hazards on and, you know, start to make it a habit. And, and it was kind of a, it really made me look at the world in a different way um, due to those traumas. So pretty interesting. So thinking back of the, you know, of the 2017 traumas that you experienced, what's, where's the gift now in, in the, mm-hmm. in the life that you're living now? How did, how does it become a gift?
2: Man, I, I mean, I think it's kind of what we've already talked about. It's that, uh, cultivated empathy, right? It's, it's, The verse that says suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And eventually when you've when you've suffered, when you've persevered through suffering, it brings about the ability to carry hope for people when they can't carry it for themselves and not in a trite way, but in a way that honors the fact that they have suffered or lost and extends light to them. So in the work I do right now, House of Faith and Freedom trains churches in domestic violence advocacy. And, um, you know, I worked in advocacy prior to 2017, but I think there was a very distinctive shift um, after going through my own personal losses, even though they're different from abuse. Um, And they're, you know, that's apples to oranges, they're not comparable, but they share that sense of suffering, right? That sense of perseverance and trauma. And I think it's built in me a deeper, more compassionate layer when I work with victims or when I work with um, pastors or church leaders and I'm training them around how do you hold space for someone who's going through trauma or how do you support them in the long term? It's, there, there's a more like visceral understanding around the fact that there aren't quick solutions Um, a lot of times with trauma, it's, especially if it's long running trauma or complex trauma, um, there, there's no like instant fix, right? It's going to be a lifelong healing process. And so the more that we can learn to walk along with someone in that process, the better that's going to be, the better community we're going to be, the more we're going to be like the hands and feet of Christ, because we're not expecting those band-aids or those instant fixes. And, um, and I think that that's a, Something that's missing in a world that treats grief or treats trauma like it can be fixed in six or seven stages, you know. And then once you're in the acceptance stage, you should just be over it instead of realizing it's really more cyclical than that. And you're going to ongoingly walk through these various phases of um, of your grief, of your loss, of your healing. And Christ is going to walk faithfully and patiently with you through that process. And we as the church should do that, too.
1: Mm. Did that make there's sense? a there's a group I've been working with called Joyly and it's called the chair of joy. And it's, it's kind of a life hack that, that helps you pick your chair of joy. And it turns out you don't really need a chair. It could be on a chairlift. It could be standing wherever, but it's a good physical kind of thing to like say, okay, let's make sure you take 60 seconds or 10 minutes or whatever, but it's sit in the chair. Um, Breathe, because when you breathe, it changes the chemistry of your brain, right? And so meditation, everything, all it takes, count in four seconds, hold four, and then out four. That's all you need for breathing. Then think about a joyful time in your life, because we've all had at least one, probably hundreds or thousands. So think of the joyful time. And then what does that joyful time make you feel? And it's such a simple thing where if you think of a normal person has 40 to 60,000 thoughts in a day, most of the time, two thirds of them are negative. And so if you can, all it takes is one simple 60 second investment like this. Now for me, what it misses is, okay, God, what's your will for my life, right? Like that's the piece where when I'm partnering with this group, it's okay. That's cool that the chair's there, but let's not make the chair the idol, Uh, that's, that's more of a, it's like the bread and the wine, right? It's like, it's a, it's an object, but it really, what I want to focus on is this, but it's a neat thing that I would think would be helpful for people who've experienced a trauma. Um, and because connecting the dots between the thinking and the feeling part of it, I think is, is key. Um, tell us a little bit about like what, when you go into a church, what, what does that program look like? I'm curious.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I have a couple of different routes people can take. So one of them is entirely self-led. I have a book that's called Ready Refuge. um, And that's sort of the practical, like down and dirty, quick advocacy guide. Um, The reason I wrote it was because while I was working in advocacy, I felt that I was having all of these victims come forward and and who had had really negative experiences with their churches. And I didn't think that that was uh, intentional on the church's part. It was really um, maybe just, you know, naivete or uh, a a misconception, things they just didn't know. They were doing the best they could in the time. And there aren't a lot of resources out there that really give you super practical steps about how you should be dealing with a domestic violence situation. Like when a victim walks in and discloses to you, what then? You know, do you call 911? Do you um, keep it private? Do you go confront the abuser? Do you help them find a shelter? You know, there's all of these different things that can get very complex really quickly. So I wrote this as sort of the basic training of how I trained people as community advocates, as crisis line advocates, as court advocates, and really put it in a context where um, God and theology are wrapped into it. So that book is the first step it's like a hundred pages i really trimmed the fat off of it it's very practical um, and then after the book i have a series of three curriculums that are workbooks that you can move through around various issues like safety and security or victim advocacy or reconciliation um, the other version for churches that maybe want a little bit more of a tailored approach is I do offer an in-church, like one full day training where I come in and teach the basics around um, domestic violence, advocacy, um, and and some of the basic frontline steps in policy creation that are really important around having your church be prepared for situations like this.
1: Wow. And how would a church know if they should be Considering this, I mean, is there like, hey, if you have one per, one uh, person attending your service on the weekend, then you may not need us. But if you have uh, over ten, then the likelihood of you're going to need you're going to need this. Uh,
2: I would say if you have three people attending your church, you need this. The statistics <laughs> for yeah, for intimate partner violence. The statistics are um, for physical violence. One in three women will experience intimate partner violence physically, and one in four men. And if we're talking about psychological or emotional abuse from an intimate partner, we're talking 50% of both women and men. So statistically speaking, like, whether or not you know that you have victims in your congregation, or you know, specific victims, you do. It's they're just there statistically. So I would say any church should have at the very, the very lowest base level some form of understanding around around domestic violence. You know, the church is one of the places that really pushes healthy marriages. And we talk a lot about marriage counseling and marriage retreats and things like that. But we don't really spend a lot of time talking about what happens when it goes sideways. And and I think that's something that's important to incorporate in because a lot of the ways that you treat domestic violence are going to be different than if you have simply an unhealthy relationship.
1: Wow. Well, <clears throat> what a great topic. Um, one more question and, and you've already answered it in a way, but I'm going to ask this one because this is my favorite question. Now, if you were to look back over the entirety of your life to date, tell me about a time where God undeniably showed up. Some people say he talked to them. One one person said he actually kind of yelled in her ear and said, don't do this. Um, and then another person you know, sees it in different, it's just all different. So I'd love to hear your experience with having communication with God.
2: Yeah, gosh, it's hard to narrow it down because I feel like God has consistently showed up in my life in so many different ways. Um, The most common way for him to show up for me is in journaling. Like I said, I'm a writer, so I write out my prayers to God and I often feel like that's a way that he communicates or speaks back to me um, is through working things out in that. Um, one of the most uh, maybe miraculous moments of God speaking to me though, was, um, after my, my dad had passed away in the house fire, that was my childhood home that had burned down. And when I, the last time I went out to the property, um, before we sold it, we had had some excavators come in and remove all of the rubble that had been there. And, um, and it was just like this gaping big hole of dirt right where the house used to be and because we lived in the country we had trees all around you know so they were this ring of burnt pine and and birch trees all the way around this big empty hole of dirt and as i was out there just kind of saying goodbye to the land and remembering and um all along the perimeter right all along these burnt trees that were dead there were forget-me-nots growing And it was this like crazy moment of feeling like God was saying, don't forget me. Don't forget eternal life. Don't forget what I'm doing, right? That I'm more than this. It felt like Mary at the tomb, having the angel say, why are you looking for the living among the dead
0: Mm.
2: or looking for the dead among the living? Sorry, totally messed that up. But it was such a powerful moment. And it was so weird because all of the growth was dead around it and then there was just these wildflowers of forget-me-nots growing so i think that was one of the most like personally impactful moments for me i feel like
1: yeah i mean the way you describe it of the the whole and i can i can just feel and taste that and it's like and yet there it is um you know when i had COVID at the end of last year in september I literally felt 10 minutes from the end of the road so much that I wrote a song about it called 10 minutes from the end of the road. Like if you're at the end, okay, now, now what? And so it really caused you a lot of people say, well, if I could put notes on my epitaph, what would it say? Right. And so this was no, no. In my last 10 minutes of physical thinking, then what would I have done differently? And so it really caused me to think of things in a lot different way. Um, Yeah. That makes me choke up a little bit um
2: yeah there's a there's this really incredible i actually have part of a tattoo of it um in the message translation which i do not suggest as your studying version of the bible but has a really beautiful poetic way about it um there's a particular verse in lamentations in chapter three that says i'll never forget the trouble the utter lostness the taste of ashes the poison I've swallowed. I remember it all. Oh, how well I remember the feeling of hitting the bottom. But there's one other thing I remember and remembering I keep a grip on hope. God's loyal love couldn't have run out. His merciful love couldn't have dried up. They're created new every morning. How great is your faithfulness? I'm sticking with God. I'll say it over and over. He's all I've got left. And I was like, how powerful is that verse? To just think about even in the midst where you can still taste the ashes, right? When you are in the middle of the suffering or when you feel like your prayer hasn't been answered, or maybe it just hasn't been answered in the timing that you would like, God is still there. That hope is still there because his faithfulness and his mercies are new every morning. And that's how we cling. That's how we move forward. That's how we heal and grow and continue.
1: Well, after, so that's where I was going is after that experience I prayed and one night, maybe five, six days after I finally was out, out back in the real living. And, um, and I prayed, Hey God, could I meet you? Even if it's just for a minute. And so that night, literally for a minute, it was just peace and calm. Like the peace that passes all understanding. Right. And I'm like, okay, great. And then I go, okay, you can go. Cause I don't want to capitalize on your time. Got it. Thank you. Good to meet you. Well, the next day. So then I'm like, okay, that's what happens. Like, and so God corrected the record because I've always thought, okay, when I'm, when I'm gone, it's just going to be peaceful and like just peace. And so I could never connect the dots on actually seeing my grandparents again and everything. Well, so the next day at four 30 or something, I wake up and I'm just like, Oh, and I'm, I'm chasing my wife in a garden and apparently garden is kind of the entrance to heaven. I'm chasing my wife in a garden. And then the coolest part was I peripherally see another kid over there. And I was like, Oh, cause we both look like kids. We had our normal head on, I think, but, but it was just such a, I was like, Oh it. there's more. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you're growing up in your life and you read about, you read the Bible and you read about heaven and it's just so hard to fathom, but then when you actually see it and you go, Oh, that, that really did give me a lot deeper level of peace of, Okay, everything here and now is so temporary that we need to optimize for eternity and stop worrying Absolutely. about it today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: we're just a blip. This life right now is just this very small beginning, right? It's the it's the preface of the story, you know, before we even start the main story.
1: wow well hannah i love the work you're doing um house of faith and org is the website and if you're at a church and you don't have a program around domestic violence i highly encourage you to check this out it's very well thought out um hannah's uh, going to be writing a, a novel soon so you can probably get the novel with this book but that may, be, that may be out of it. So Hannah, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's really been fabulous getting to know you. Thanks for sharing with our listeners.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Chad. All
1: right, everybody. Thanks for joining another Living Better Story podcast.
0: Thank you for joining us on the You Matter to Christ podcast. We hope this journey has reminded you of the incredible truth that your life holds immense value and significance to Christ. As you go about your day, may you carry the assurance that no matter what you face, you are deeply cherished and loved. Remember, you matter to Christ. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with others who may benefit from this message. Stay tuned for more transformative episodes where we continue to explore the depth of God's love and grace. Until next time, remember that you are not alone. Christ's love is with you, guiding and strengthening you every step of the way. May your life be filled with hope, purpose, and the knowledge that you matter to Christ.